Chapter Fifteen of The Shadow of Victory. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Crystal Armida. The Shadow of Victory by Myrtle Reed. Chapter Fifteen. Rivals. August came, but there was no sign of fighting. Beatrice was openly skeptical and said she did not believe there had been any declaration of war, but she spent more of her time at Captain Franklin's than at home. Forsyth and the Mackenzies missed her keenly, even though she made occasional visits across the river. Her real reason was her wish to avoid Forsyth and Ronald, but both of them went cheerfully to the captains on flimsy pretexts or none at all. Robert fell into the habit of making early morning calls on Lieutenant and Mrs. Howard. Then, when Beatrice came out of the house to sit on the porch, he could saunter over carelessly and spend an accidental hour or so with her. Ronald was more direct and never hesitated to pound vigorously at the door when he wanted to see Beatrice and had the slightest excuse for going there. The experience was new to the ensign, who had come unscathed through many a flirtation and who had regarded love lightly, after the manner of his kind. He had been the master of every situation so far, but at last he had come face to face with something that made him weak and helpless, as if he had been clay in the potter's hands. No matter how hot it was, he led Queen patiently twenty times around the fort in the broiling sun, and never attempted to mount, even when Beatrice was in the house. Moreover, though he would have scorned to rub down his own horse, he often put finishing touches upon Queen's glossy coat after she had been groomed. This gave him an opportunity to go over to Captain Franklin's, still leading the horse, and ask Beatrice how she liked her pet's appearance. Simple and transparent as the device was, it never failed to win a smile for him, and sometimes, too, the girl would linger to feed Queen lumps of sugar and gossip with Ronald meanwhile. She painted when she felt like it, and did a great deal of sewing, both occupations being fraught with interest to Forsyth and Ronald. Mrs. Franklin was often one of the group, and Catherine made no attempt to efface herself. They were all sitting on the porch in front of the captain's house one hot morning, when Ronald appeared with a bowl and a spoon. Taste, he said, offering it to Mrs. Franklin. Catherine followed her example. Then Beatrice, always eager for new sensations, helped herself rather liberally. Robert also partook of the savory stew. Pretty good, he said critically. What is it? It's poor old Major, replied Ronald sadly. The Indians cooked him and let me have some of the remains. Beatrice gasped and fled into the house. The other women had risen to follow her when the situation was relieved by the appearance of Major coming across the parade ground in full cry with Dr. Norton in hot pursuit. I couldn't hold him any longer, shouted the doctor. You brute, exclaimed Mrs. Franklin. Catherine went into the house to relieve Beatrice's apprehensions, and they returned together to add to the torrent of reproach that assailed the ensign's ears. He was doubled up with unseemly mirth and apparently did not hear. That just goes to show, he said, when the paroxysm had passed, how the mind influences the body. I had an argument with Doc this morning, and I've proved my point. If he hadn't let Major go, you would have thought you had eaten him and been miserable accordingly. Rob said it was good, and dog or not dog, the fact remains. Beatrice turned pale as a horrible suspicion entered her mind. What is it? she asked. Upon your word and honor, what is it? It's mutton stew, replied Ronald, conclusively, made by Mrs. Mackenzie this very morning for your own approaching dinner. She kindly gave me some of it to keep me alive till noon. In fact, I helped to make it. You're a wretch, exclaimed Catherine. Just hear him, Doc, said Ronald, assuming a grieved tone. I'm not sure but what you deserve it, 
laughed Norton. If I had known what you were going to do, I wouldn't have tried to hold the dog. It's really very interesting, observed the ensign thoughtfully. It shows what slaves of custom we are. Major is a medium-sized, woolly animal, much better looking than a sheep, yet sheep is considered eatable, and Major isn't. Then, too, we eat cattle and draw the line at horses. There must be many a good stake on Queen. Tears came to Beatrice's eyes, but she said nothing, and Forsyth warned Ronald with a look which was not noticed. Not that I think of eating her, resumed George cheerfully. I wouldn't get any exercise if I did. I wouldn't miss leading that beast around the fort every morning for a fortune. It's the only uninterrupted feminine society I have. At this juncture, Beatrice went into the house and slammed the door emphatically. Our diet here seems to be somewhat restricted, continued Ronald, apparently unmindful of his decreasing audience. Cow and sheep, sheep and cow, with an occasional piggy rift in the cloud. Bertie eats dog whenever he can get it, and look at him. He's got as much endurance as any five of us, and I'm not sure but what he's better put together than I am. Yes, he is, put in Catherine with caustic emphasis, and he's better company also. Come in, she continued to Mrs. Franklin. Ronald gazed after the retreating figures in pained amazement. Well, what do you think of that? he asked mournfully. You fellows probably don't notice it, because you're not sensitive to such things. But to my mind, which is more finely organized, it's a delicate intimation that we're not wanted. Let's move along. Delicate is good, commented the doctor as they walked away. I call it rather pointed myself. Strange, isn't it? remarked Ronald impersonally. How some people fall into line with the expressed opinion of others. Ronald, said the doctor, with mock admiration, I don't think I ever met a man with so much fine tact as you have. Your unerring choice of happy subjects stands by itself alone and unapproachable. Run along to your medicines, you old pill-roller, retorted the ensign. I want to talk to my cousin Robert. Norton laughed and turned away, but he felt his isolation keenly, nonetheless. Lieutenant Howard was barely civil to him, as was natural under the circumstances, and he dared not see much of Catherine. Captain Franklin was not particularly congenial, and Mrs. Franklin had a vague distrust of him. She knew nothing more about the affair than Catherine had told her in the winter, but she surmised a great deal. Ronald had been the doctor's mainstay, but since Beatrice came to Fort Dearborn, he had been conspicuous by his absence. Forsyth was busy a great deal of the time, and the doctor was left to intermittent association with the Mackenzies and the dubious consolation of the barracks. It was true, he often told himself that his nature was one of those foreordained to loneliness, but at times he hungered for the companionship of his kind. Books were few upon the frontier, and those few he knew by heart, so he scraped lint, made bandages, brewed medicines, cultivated a certain philosophical turn of mind, and wondered vaguely where and how it would end. Ronald and Forsyth were walking aimlessly in the neighborhood of the fort. The rigid discipline had somewhat relaxed, but no one was permitted to pass the picket lines. The Indians only came and went as they pleased, recognizing no laws but those of their own making. Ronald appeared to have something on his mind and made disconnected and irrelevant answers to Forsyth's observations. Say, he interrupted, at last, how do you suppose we're ever going to get anywhere? What do you mean, asked Robert, in astonishment. Why, Beatrice, you know, he said awkwardly. You don't give me any chance. I don't understand you, returned the other coolly. Come now, said Ronald, roughly. You know I'm no good at words, but I don't get your idea. There's always a mob around wherever she is. 
and if I get her to myself a minute, you prance in as if you belonged there. If you're always going to do that, we might as well hunt her up now and tell her we both want to marry her, ask her to take her pick, and end the suspense. An amused light came into Robert's eyes. Do you know, he replied, it seemed to me the same way. If I get her to myself for a minute, you make it your business to join us. This morning, now, I was there first, wasn't I? The ensign's clouded face cleared. I guess you were, he said slowly. Honestly, do I do that? I should say you did, answered Forsyth, with unexpected spirit. Since she moved away from Aunt Eleanor's, I haven't seen her alone for ten minutes. Ronald laughed heartily as the ludicrous element of the situation dawned upon him. I say, old man, he began, we'll have to fix it some way. Divide her up into watches, you know, or something like that. Forsyth did not relish the way Ronald expressed it, but he caught the idea and nodded. How'll we do it? continued the ensign. We can't take her into our confidence. Don't know, returned Robert, dully. Doesn't make any difference, really, for I haven't a chance with you. Cheer up. You'll never get her if you mourn all the time. A girl likes to have things lively. I know how you feel. I've often felt that way myself, but I try to keep things going just the same. You have to attract a woman's attention. It doesn't matter how much. I surmised you thought that this morning, remarked Forsyth, with veiled sarcasm. He failed to mention the fact that, although he loved Beatrice, her evident displeasure had made him unspeakably glad. Ronald's face bronzed, but he seldom admitted the possibility of his making a mistake. We'll say, he began, for the hypothesis that our chances are equal. Since she moved over to the captain's, you've lost your unfair advantage. She goes across the river, of course, but we'll set against that the fact that she's in the fort the rest of the time. Now suppose we divide the day into three parts morning afternoon and evening it's morning till noon afternoon till six and evening till midnight she mustn't lose her sleep or she'll be cropped we'll take turns for instance if i have the morning you get the afternoon and i'll take the evening the next day it will be your turn in the morning and evening and mine in the afternoon see suppose she doesn't come out that's as it may be the fellow whose turn it is takes the risk she can do as she pleases we simply agree to leave the field for the other at the time specified, military and educational duties to the contrary notwithstanding. That's fair, isn't it? Yes, I think it is. Anyhow, it's better than we've been doing. It will lessen the possibility of friction. Good thing, commented Ronald. Many a time I felt like taking you by the collar and shaking you as a terrier shakes a rat. Me too, laughed Forsyth. Whose turn is it this afternoon? I think it's mine. We were both there this morning, but you intimated that I didn't leave a pleasant impression, and I ought to have a chance to set myself right, don't you think? As you say, it doesn't make any difference to me. I'll have to get out pretty early some of the time, mused Ronald, and exercise the beast. I don't want to lose a precious hour doing that. We might take turns, suggested Forsyth tentatively. We will not, retorted Ronald. That's my job. She gave it to me herself. Forsyth went across the river, and Ronald returned to the fort. Each was relieved because the matter was settled, for as Robert had indicated, there had been friction. All through the long, hot afternoon, Ronald kept a close watch upon Captain Franklin's door. His knock met with no response, and Catherine had long since gone home. Dr. Norton had attempted to talk with the waiting swain, but found it unsatisfactory and retired gracefully. Just before six o'clock, Beatrice emerged. Her white gown was turned in a little at the throat, and her hair hung far below her waist in a heavy shining braid, ending in a curl. Ronald's heart gave a great leap as he went to meet her. Where are you going? 
he asked. Over to Aunt Eleanor's. You spoiled my dinner and I'm hungry. I'm sorry, he said with evident contrition. Will you forgive me? You ought to do penance for it. I'll do anything you say, Miss B. Lead Queen twenty-five times around the fort after sundown, she said. She'll be glad to get out again, and it won't hurt you. Ronald smiled grimly as she went away, disregarding his offer to row her across. It's a hard service, he thought, but I've enlisted and I'll see it through. Thorny damsel. But, oh, ye gods, she's sweet. Forsyth had made the most elaborate toilet his circumstances permitted and was prepared to make the best of his coming opportunity. Did you see George this afternoon? he asked with feigned carelessness. I did not, returned Beatrice with a toss of her head. He nearly broke down the captain's door, but it was locked and nobody let him in. He was talking with that precious dog of his when I came out, and he offered to row me over, but I came by myself. I would have gone after you, said Robert with ill-advised eagerness. Thank you, she said coolly, but I'm not so old yet that I can't row fairly well on still water. That evening Forsyth had the felicity of sitting on the piazza with Beatrice beside him, while his rival dejectedly led Queen round and round the fort. His efforts at entertainment seemed to be unusually happy and effective, though he was too obtuse to notice that she laughed only when Ronald was in sight and presumably within hearing. Mackenzie sat with them for a while, but soon went in. You take the first watch, he said to Robert, and call Chan for the second. I've got to get up early in the morning anyway. All right, sir. Do you think there's any use of watching, she asked, when the trader had closed the door? Of course, answered Robert promptly. If we were all asleep, no one would hear the gun, and we might all be taken prisoners before we had a chance to get to the fort. Have you always watched out here? Yes, a part of the night, ever since we knew war had been declared. It's lonely, isn't it? It might be, but I always have something pleasant to think about. Beatrice did not press the question further. What time does the first watch end? Oh, along about midnight. I'll stay with you, said the girl impulsively. I had a long sleep this afternoon, and I'd love to help watch. May I? Robert's heart beat loudly, but he controlled his voice. Of course you may, he said. When Robert's task was finished, he led Queen into the fort. Twenty-four, mused Beatrice. He skipped one, or else I didn't count right. Twenty-four, repeated Robert inquiringly. Yes, she said. He had to take Queen around twenty-five times because he was bad this morning, and tried to make me think I'd eaten Major. I don't like things like that. Robert laughed happily and felt an inexplicable generosity toward Ronald. You can't count right, he assured her. He never would skip. Perhaps not. Anyhow, I'll let it go. The hours passed as if on wings, and both were surprised when the deep-toned bell at the fort told taps. The moon rose, and a path of gold gleamed on the water, rippling gently with the night wind. See, said Beatrice softly. It's always seemed to me as if one might row along that path when the moon is low and go straight in. When I was a child, I used to think that I'd do it as soon as I got old enough to manage a boat by myself. I wondered why nobody ever went to the moon when it was so close, and I thought it would be a fine thing if I could be the first one to go. I couldn't see any doors and concluded they must be on the other side, but I was sure I could row around when I got there and I never doubted for an instant that the moon people would be delighted to see me. What strange fancies children have. You're only a child now, said Robert huskily. A little helpless child. Helpless, repeated Beatrice with an odd little cadence at the end of the rising inflection. I've never been told that before. See how strong my hands are? 
laughing she offered a small white dimpled hand for his inspection with an articulate cry he bent to kiss it and she snatched it away much offended you presume she said coldly perhaps you think i'm like other girls you are different from everybody in the world he answered in a low tender tone they are clay like the rest of us only a finer sort but you are a bit of priceless porcelain you are made of flowers and stars and dreams of sunlight and moonlight spring and dawn all the beauty of the earth has gone to make you violets for your eyes a rose for your mouth and a white morning glories for your hands when you smile it is like the light of a midsummer noon when you laugh it is the music of falling waters when you sing to yourself it is like a bird in the wilderness breaking one's heart with the exquisite sweetness of it darling darling he cried passionately no one in the world is like you beatrice was trembling and for the moment was dumb robert stood before her with his hands outstretched and pleading until emboldened by her silence he leaned forward to take her into his arms and she moved swiftly aside very pretty she said with an effort and in a matter-of-fact tone then she laughed i did not know that you were a poet she continued rising and shaking out her skirts the moonlight has made you mad not the moonlight sweetheart but you well the two of us then returned beatrice lightly it's getting late and i must go no he cried you said you would stay till the end of my watch that was before i knew you were a poet no i'm going back by myself good night and pleasant dreams he untied the pirogue for her and helped her into it his senses reeling at the momentary touch of her hand and when she crossed the path of gold that lay upon the water the light shone full upon her flower-like face the man's blood surged into his heart with rapturous pain as exquisite radiant and unattainable she passed through the gate of the fort and out of his sight he stood there long after she had vanished shaken from head to foot by a passion as pure and exalted as sir galahad might have felt for elaine end of chapter fifteen recorded by crystal armida texas